So I saw in the um, in well the the Facebook I don't know what you call it I saw online um, I saw that this is a special week um, and so you should be prepared for a bad week because uh, this week begins with the daylight savings time and then tomorrow is the full moon and then Friday is the thirteenth so it it could be a real doozy um, so uh, so yeah you may find yourself some some evening coming home and saying boy what a day. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised with a week lined up like this. And our passage today kind of it, it, it looks like one of those days. It looks like Jesus is having a bad day. What is what is going on? Is Jesus just having one of those days? Um, it seems like it. it seems like Jesus is simply taking out his frustrations on this inanimate object, not because it did anything wrong, but simply because it's handy and it can't fight back. That's what it looks like. But. As you can imagine, that's not what I think it, it communicates, but um, it is unusual. It seems uncharacteristic of Jesus to behave this way, and particularly at the end where he says, hey, and you do it too. You know, watch out fruit trees everywhere, because, because he says, hey, you can do that too. So, um, so it seems uncharacteristic for Jesus to, uh, to behave this way, and then even worse for him to encourage us to do so. Um, so what is going on here? Well, I, I, I will confess it is an unusual passage, but it's not unusual because Jesus is having a bad day or because Jesus is is um, uh, overstressed. Uh, and honestly, even if he were overstressed, uh, even if this was a bad day, who who am I to judge? Right? You know, I haven't died for the sins of the world. I haven't risen. So who am I to judge Jesus? Right? So I'm not in a position to judge, but I don't think that's what's going on here. And what I want to do is I want to talk about what I think is going on. Because Jesus does something that's very unusual, something that he only does one time in all the gospel accounts, in all the different biographies of Jesus. This is the only place, or this this event that's described here and in Matthew's uh, uh, biography, um, is the only time Jesus does this. And we know what he mostly does. We're familiar with Jesus' ministry, and we know Jesus' ministry was characterized by these signs and wonders. He performed miracles for people, and you know he he uh, uh, raised a couple of dead people back to life. He he uh, cured lepers. He uh, uh, healed paralytics, and so forth. Jesus performed these miracles, these signs that demonstrated that God um, God had authorized him to to proclaim the the, the kingdom of God. In the world, so we know Jesus' ministry was characterized by miracles, but he was also characterized by parables. Um, parables, in particular, um, Jesus taught to people. He taught people about God, but in particular, he used parables to teach people about God. And the idea of a parable is a comparison. It's it's um it's saying there's a spiritual reality we can't see, and we won't know unless somebody reveals it to us. But it's not. Unlike this other thing, this this worldly thing, um, and a lot of Jesus's uh, metaphors uh, when he made these parables were farming metaphors. He'd say he'd say that the kingdom of God is like a seed growing or things like that. So he used a lot of agricultural metaphors, and that's what we've been looking at during this season of Lent, um, and we're going to continue looking at is some of the different places where in, in the New Testament we read um, about a spiritual reality that is described to us in terms of a um, Agricultural metaphor. So um, uh, that's that's uh, what is uh, typical of Jesus's ministry, and we see that all through the New Testament. But in this passage today, Jesus does something that's unusual, something that he only does the one time, and um, uh, it is it is um, what we'll be looking at today. 
And um, it has to do, as I said, with fruit. And uh, to understand what he's doing here, we have to realize that in the New Testament, fruit is a metaphor that means a better life. So um, uh, I don't know what you think about for a better life. Maybe you're thinking about um, I, I might have um, a better marriage or I might have uh, I might have a different relationship with my children or with my parents or something like that. I might have better relationships. Or maybe we might think I might have more self-control I might be able to break a bad habit. I might be able to, you know, to overcome some kind of addiction. Or I might actually have enough self-control to actually begin doing something that I know I should, that, that there's some habit. Maybe I need to go to the gym or I need to do something to get healthy. I need to do something that I'm not doing. And if I had more self-control, I'd be able to start that, ha- uh, that, that good habit. And, and so those are things we, where we think about what might my better life be like. It might be something like that. But Paul says those things are downstream from what a better life really is. He says, he says in his letter to the Galatians, he says the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So you can see the things we want, a better marriage, uh, um, uh, control over some addiction or some bad habit. Those are things that flow out of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So, so that's what the, the New Testament is talking about when it says, when it says we can have fruit in our life. And Jesus says more than that. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. Not just a little bit of fruit. Not just that one thing you were thinking, you know, it'd be nice if, if I could get some, some change in that part of my life. But, um, I could produce much fruit. And that is our first point. A relationship with God produces fruit. It just will. That's what we see over and over again throughout the New Testament, that any relationship with God will produce fruit. Which raises the question, because this is Lent and we're supposed to be kind of uneasy or feeling a little awkward, is what kind of fruit are you producing? So what kind of fruit are you producing? In this passage, Jesus gives us a clue to how we can produce the kind of fruit we want. And he does it, he underscores his point by doing something here that he does nowhere else in the, the New Testament. As I said, Jesus uh, routinely taught with miracles and parables. But in this passage, Jesus combines the two. He wraps the parable inside of a miracle. And those are two great things that go great together. So I don't know what you call this technically. It might be called a parabical or a paracubal or a miracable, something like that. I don't know what the name for it is, but this is the one place so it really doesn't matter. We can just say Mark 11 and, and the parallel passage in Matthew. This is the only place where Jesus performs a miracle around a parable. And this this idea is something that's common in um, ancient literature. Uh, there was this structure people used. So you're familiar with this, this, this idea since we're talking about food. Instead of thinking of a piece of candy, think of a sandwich. The idea is that there's, there's bread on the outside and then in between there's something else. You could have a ham sandwich or you could have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And the idea is the thing in the middle is what characterizes the sandwich. The, the bread, no one talks about it very much. Uh, what we talk about is the peanut butter and jelly. And that idea is what's going on in this literary device that was used in the, in the first century. It was the idea you'd wrap your big idea in a different idea to call attention to the big idea. So there is this sandwich structure. And what we see in this passage is we see that there's a sandwich, a fig, a fig tree sandwich that is wrapped around the parable about the temple. 
So it's a complicated literary device to our eyes, but it's crystal clear, and you can see in the in the program, I've actually indented the, the middle section there so you can see the temple section as opposed to the... Um, the fig tree section. So let's go ahead and take a look at this passage and see what Jesus teaches us about fruit. So it says, The next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. And he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. So that's the top layer of fig tree bread. Then he goes to Jerusalem. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and the teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. So that is the middle layer. That's the peanut butter and jelly. That is the part that we're supposed to focus on. And oftentimes we we draw the wrong conclusion from it. Oftentimes we think that the reason Jesus drove out the the um, the people who were selling animals was because he was an animal rights protester, or maybe the reason he's going to be unhappy when he when we have um, someone selling Girl Scout cookies downstairs in a few minutes um, is because Jesus doesn't want any money to change hands in houses of worship, and that's not really the point. And the way we know that that's not really the point, this is not about this is not an anti-commercial message. This is about something else. And the reason we know that is because of what Jesus says. Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah says this. He says, I will bring them. Who is them? Them is foreigners and eunuchs. Foreigners and eunuchs. The people who, uh, the, the audience of Isaiah could not imagine anyone more disconnected from God than foreigners and, and non-foreign eunuchs. They're both way beyond anything that we can imagine God having anything to do with people like that. So they are as far off as you can imagine. And God says, I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So our second point is God hears prayers of unimaginable people. The people, we cannot imagine, why would God ever listen to that person's prayers? Could God even hear the prayers of that person, much less act on them? The answer is God hears the prayers of unimaginable people. And Jesus is upset when this structure designed for people to be able to bring their prayers to God is not functioning for that purpose. And so he compares it to the temple in the time of the prophet Jeremiah. He says, he quotes Jeremiah who says this, Don't you admit that this temple, which bears my name, has become a den of thieves? So if we read chapter 7 of Jeremiah, what Jeremiah is complaining about is that people have compartmentalized their lives. They spend Monday through, or they spend Sunday through, through Friday, um, doing their daily stuff, whatever it might be. And then they come to the temple on Saturday and they act all holy. 
they have a compartmentalized life. They have their, their life out in the world, and then they've got their religious life. They've got their temple life. And Jeremiah is saying, it's like you have disconnected these two. You think you can bring whatever it is you're doing out in the world to church. And I don't notice. It's as if you think that this building here, this temple, is a den of robbers. You, you just you just show up here, and it doesn't matter what you are out there. As if as if that didn't come with you. God says, no. When you bring when you come in, you bring that stuff with you. You have made my temple a den of thieves. And they say, yeah, well, maybe, but but it's the temple, right? It's holy. Doesn't that rub off on us? Doesn't that make us kind of, don't we just kind of uh, bask in the glow of holiness when we come to the temple? And God says, well, there were some other people who thought that too. He says, go now to the place at Shiloh where I once put my tabernacle that bore my name. See what I did there because of all the wickedness of my people, the Israelites. God says, if you think that this place is so holy, you can just kind of show up here and that holiness will, will cover over whatever you've been doing out in the, out in the world all week. Well, go look at Shiloh because it's not true. If you go to Shiloh, you'll see there used to be a tabernacle there, but not anymore. And that's the symbol that God gave to them. And, um, he goes on in chapter eight, uh, Jeremiah, he says, I will put an into them, declares the Lord. There are no grapes in the vine, no figs in the tree, only withered leaves. So Jesus is using the parable with the figs. I'm sorry, he's using the miracle with the fig tree to communicate this message about the temple. He's saying that the temple cannot be used to, to put a holy stamp on an unholy life. He says that God won't be a party to formal religion. God won't be a party if all you want is the form, if you want to look like you're religious, if you're not interested in having fruit in your life, then God says, you know what, I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to take my bat and my ball and I'm going to take my tabernacle or my temple and I'm going to go somewhere else. And good luck with that. You know, ask the people at Shiloh, how did that work out for them? Because God says, I'm not going to be a party to formal religion. So this brings us back to our question, what kind of fruit? Are you producing? In that long list that Paul gave us, the love, joy, uh, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, how are you doing? How much fruit do you see in your own life? Is that how you would see your life characterized? Well, our story's not over. The next morning, they passed by the fig tree. He had cursed. The disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day, and he exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the tree, the fig tree you have cursed has withered and died. And then Jesus says this. He says, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen, and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you're praying, you first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. What is Jesus saying here? He's not telling us that we can throw mountains around. He's not telling us that we can we can curse fig trees and have them wither. He's saying the power of God is available to you. If you're not bearing the kind of fruit you want, really, that's kind of to be expected. If if you read what Paul says about fruit in, in the Galatians letter, he says, this is the kind of fruit you will bear apart from God. And he gives a long list of all the different things we don't want to be doing. 
And then he says, but with God in you, with the Holy Spirit working in you, you will produce this kind of, this kind of fruit. He's saying, you're a banana tree by nature. And I don't expect to find anything on a banana tree but bananas. But God will turn you into an apple tree. And then I will find apples. Or more, more to the point, you are a dead tree. You are, you are a fig tree in the wrong season. No one could possibly expect good things to come from you. But God working in you can perform miracles. God can cause mountains to jump into oceans. God can cause fig trees to bear fruit in the wrong season. God can cause you to bear the fruit. So what kind of fruit do you want? What kind of fruit do you want in your life? Jesus tells us to aim high. He says, you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And he says, here in this passage, he says, I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe you've received it, it will be yours. So our last point, if the fruit you want isn't there, if you're not who you want to be, don't try harder. Don't, you know, scrunch up really hard and say, I'm going to squeeze out a banana, right? You know, that's not how it works. He's saying that God will produce fruit in you. God will make you who you want to be. And if you're not seeing it, trust God, because God may have different priorities than you. You may say, look, I want, I want help with this problem. But God's saying, no, actually what you really need help is this other problem. C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So, what kind of fruit are you, what kind of fruit are you producing? Are you producing the fruit of a good life? Because that is available to you. God will not help you with a formal religion. If you don't want to change your life, God will let you stay where you are. But if you want a changed life, God's power is available. The power that can move mountains. So trust God. Jesus knew that trusting him, particularly if he's busy throwing up towers and and putting on wings and turrets, and we were expecting something else, that might be hard to do. It might be hard to trust him. So he told us, periodically, we should gather around a table and celebrate the gift that he gave us as a way of remembering that he is faithful. He keeps his promises, and he will see your salvation through to its completion. So I invite you to join us when we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few moments. Um, He invites you to this table if you have not come in a long time or if you were here last week. He invites you to come to this table if you have been faithful And if you have been unfaithful, he invites you to come to this table, not because you are worthy, but because he is worthy. And it is his will that those who want him 
would find him at this table.